Elevate Nation. Hey guys, um, we have a special episode today with Casey Conway, Chief Economist of the CCIM Institute and deeply knowledgeable on all things economy, economic circumstances, and obviously we're living through a crazy time right now, but I wanted to bring this episode to you guys so we can all be as educated as possible right now. I mean, we're going through totally uh, a transformational economic period where, you know, things, some things are getting decimated. You know, some people are getting decimated and obviously we don't make light of that. Um, and at the end of the day, it's all about how do we act? How do we adapt now? How do we react? How do we, you know, assess and evaluate and take action? And that's really what today's all about is educating and making sure that you understand how one bone is connected to the other bone of the body, you know, so to speak, because, you know, if, if something doesn't fit, then obviously something else can be impacted so deeply. So um, I just think it's so important for us to be aware of the depth of what's going on right now so that as real estate investors, that as people who are elevating to a life without limits, it's not all sunny skies. It's not all, you know, perfect waters that have no waves that have no, you know, thunderstorms coming. So you know, if you're committed, if you're defiantly committed to do anything it takes to live that life, to elevate to a life without limits, you're going to run into challenges. And obviously life is full of challenges and real estate investing is full of challenges and building your own life, designing a life is something that's challenging. And you know what, especially if you're going to live at the highest level, that's where you're going to get tested. And this is a test for all of us. You know, obviously we want to keep everybody safe. We want to keep everybody healthy. Um, so you want to do your shelter in place, you know, as, as we're all sort of trying to flatten the curve here in the United States and around the world. And at the same time, we need to build our business. We need to build our systems. We need to continue to build relationships, whether it's, you know, over zoom, whether it's on a phone call or, you know, perhaps a, a social distancing sort of a meeting, if you want to go outside and meet somebody or whatever that may be, because, you know, relationships are still the core and, what happened, what worked, you know, a month ago, two months ago may not work right now. It may work in the future um, or it may not. So how do you need to adapt? So the question right now is, what are you going to do to adapt? Are you going to say, wow, what was me? I give up, you know, this, uh, the life without limits wasn't for me. Or are you going to say, you know what, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. You know, maybe you're a retail real estate investor and you're getting decimated right now. So you could, you could just give up and throw in the towel or, you can double down and you can go in a new direction and you can continue to adapt. What do you need to do to reuse your space? Uh, you're a multifamily real estate investor. I know myself, I'm a multifamily real estate investor. And yeah, a lot of our tenants are having challenges right now, but many also are not. And so, you know, the question is, what do we need to be doing now? And so I hope that this uh, episode is really useful for you. I hope it's actionable. Um, you know, you need to be reading these reports that Casey is talking about. Um, you need to be observing, you know, what is the Fed doing? What does that do in terms of currency? How do you need to position yourself in terms of an investor? You know, obviously, you know, m many times in these types of circumstances, we would say, hey, cash is king, because it's great to be able to take advantage of opportunities when they start to go on sale. Maybe things are being repriced. Maybe you're in a deal right now that is being repriced or, or should be repriced. So perhaps you need to be thinking of that. And how does that impact you on the ground floor, on the street, you know, right in front of you, rather than, you know, being a theoretical sort of, uh, you know, a, you know, studier of the global economic environment, you know, take action on that information. Um, you know, do you need to be investing in other types of currencies as well? I mean, it's something that I'm looking at, um, you know, because, look, the Fed is just continuing to print endless amounts of cash, you know, the US dollar, who knows where that's going to go. So you need to be educated on all of these different things. And make sure that you position yourself appropriately, continue to communicate with others, you know, reach out to me or reach out to my team. Um, if you need to be connected to anybody, please, you know, reach out, you, you can go to my website, tylerchester.com. And you know, send a note over there. Obviously, you can connect with me on any uh, social media, you know, outlet there is, you can comment on the podcast, whatever it may be, we'll connect you and I'll connect with you personally. But at this time, it's all about communicating. It's not about necessarily waiting until all the opportunities pass, because if you wait too long, you know, the opportunities may pass. And obviously, 
you want to be thoughtful, you want to be patient, but I thought it would be very timely for us to have this conversation right now because every single day the thing, you know, the economic environment is changing. And so what has worked in the past, you know, does not work anymore, uh, perhaps. And um, so I just wanted to give you these tools. I hope it's useful for you. I hope you can take action on it. Share this with somebody else. Share this with a friend because as you know, we always say the teacher is who learns the most. I would encourage you to listen to the show multiple times and take notes. I know I say it every time, but this one more than ever, you know, what do you need to cover gaps of your lack of understanding on the global economic environment? And how does that impact you? You know, how can that distill down to what you're doing? Maybe you're just getting started as a real estate investor and it seems overwhelming. Well, you can build a habit of understanding and studying what's going on in the global economic environment, because guess what? It all impacts you. You know, the global trade. I mean, we've been talking about tariffs for a while and how that's impacted builders and developers and pricing is passed down to consumers. So even if you're just learning this as a consumer, it's so important to study. So I would encourage you to build a habit of study and understanding what's going on. Read headlines, read articles. You know, I would, I would encourage you to stay away too much from the opinionated news cycle because that can, you know, build weeds in the, the garden of your mind. But certainly you want to guard the gates of your mind and not let too much negative information take root, take plant in your mind. But you also need to be aware. You've got to be a realist and understand that it's not all great news. So how do you act when there's good news, when there's bad news? Where are the opportunities for you uh, to capture? Because there will be substantial opportunities on the back end of this. Uh, if you're responsible, if you continue to educate yourself, if you continue to invest in yourself as a person and as a real estate investor, as well as communicating with other people and continue to develop your, your network, your peer, your relationships, uh, personally and professionally, because you know what, we're going to see who has spent the time and done the hard things during the self-isolation, during the quarantine time. And I know that Elevate Nation is going to join me and be on the side of those who really have done whatever it takes to get out of this and be stronger on the back end. And so I encourage you to do that. And um, thanks again for watching the show, for listening to the show. And please subscribe, give us a subscribe, you know, like the show wherever you're watching it, whether it's YouTube, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you know, wherever. I mean, we're, we're everywhere. So please share the show, subscribe. We've got some amazing, amazing content coming out soon. Um, so just, just be ready. We got some huge names coming up and, uh, we're only, we're just getting started here. So elevate nation until next time. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to elevate the podcast where we dissect exceptional achievers who are consistently raising the bar personally and professionally to produce extraordinary results in investment, real estate, and ultimately in their lives. Now here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chester. I'm so thankful to have you here, and I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting with Casey Conway. Casey, how are you? I'm great. Uh, at home and wait, waiting to lease some office space when all this lifts again, so I can have private space again. <laughs> I was going to say, man, you're you're making it work. We're all making it work. It's a it's a bizarre time we're living in, and uh, I want to welcome Elevate Nation back because we're absolutely going to take it to another level today and. We've got an extremely special guest here today, especially considering the circumstances. We've got a really a special edition of Elevate Podcast today, and this is really an economic uh, evaluation in terms of, you know, we're really living through history right now. We're living through some substantial period of time regarding COVID-19, regarding the coronavirus, regarding a substantial seismic shift in the economy, and real estate investors need to know what's going on. We need to educate ourselves. We need to be able to put strategies in place and and act accordingly because what happened one month ago or what was relevant one month ago is no longer relevant now and and will no longer be relevant in the near future, I would imagine. So hopefully this conversation will be extremely enlightening and illuminating. Uh, but with that said, I want to go ahead and introduce Casey Conway, who is the Alabama, Alabama Center for Real Estate Director, ACRE, as well as the CCIM Chief Economist. Uh, for Certified Commercial Investment Member Institute globally. And so obviously we've got an amazing guest here with us today. I mean, he's got crazy credentials. He's been in uh, commercial real estate for 35 years, 30 years private industry, five years with the Federal Reserve uh, between 2005 and 2010. 
And he's also been an MAI since 1989 and a counselor of real estate CRE designation since 2009, which is a highly uh, distinguished designation. And, uh, you know, he's been the director of research and corporate engagement at Alabama Center for Real Estate at Culver Culver House College of Business, University of Alabama. And so we could go on and on and on and talk about his credentials, (laughs) but I'll save him the embarrassment. I see the face is getting a little bit red there, but Casey, welcome to the show. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about yourself if you want to give a little brief introduction of what I didn't fill in there. No, thank you. I, I think I have to hire you for the obituary. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Good, good job. You know, I, I uh, just for those who don't know me, I, I grew up in Colorado in a developer family. When I was a teenager, uh, that's when the period. My dad was a ski resort developer, and an and an MAI, and uh, that was a period of time when Paul Volcker took interest rates twenty one percent. So I, I learned why in the world would you ever want to be involved with real estate? It seems like everything goes wrong. And so I lived through the SNL crisis, ended up in Atlanta um, by going to business school at Emory University. My dad convinced me to go into the appraisal profession to learn how to value real estate. So I knew how to talk faster than the banker when I needed a loan um, and, and, and how values were, were construed. Uh, you know, uh, the last uh, really interesting time was uh, 2000. Five to 2010, I was actually at the Federal Reserve. I was their subject matter expert in real estate. I was in the Atlanta Fed, and then in 2009 and 10, I moved to the New York Fed when things really got heated. So I, I really thought I was done with these crises and, and, could, and had rebuilt my retirement plan, but I guess we're all going back to ground zero. So um, I guess what I would say is I've made a loan, I broke a loan, I fixed a loan, I regulated a loan, and now I've lost everything I, I borrowed. <laughs> so I'm just back with everybody else. <laughs> I hear you. Well, there's a, such a depth of experience there and, and such a deep understanding of you know the complexities of economics from so many different angles. So that's what we want to talk about today. And I'd love to even start with the Fed. I mean, it's, you know, what the Fed is doing is absolutely amazing. I mean, you look at the two, $2 trillion stimulus bill and package that's being sort of rolled out across the United States currently, and perhaps even more to come there, you know, saving and, and really kind of injecting blood into the body of this, uh, you know, this, this being that seems to be hemorrhaging, and, you know, so to speak, across the United States from an econo- economic standpoint. So I'd love to talk there. I would love to start there in terms of, perhaps maybe the, uh, you know, what's, what's the back end of this? I mean, obviously we've got to save the, the, the disruption of cash flow from the economic system currently. Obviously it seems to be that's the, uh, the solution there, but what do you see as the potential, you know, circumstances that can arise on the back end of this? Yeah, so, you know, 2005 to 10 was, a, you know, a, a laboratory experiment when I was at the Fed. It was the Fed initially was was rather slow to digest and understand what was happening in the housing and financial crisis it had so many tentacles. It really it played out really over a much longer period of time. Really, if you think about it, the housing market went kind of in the toilet mid 2006. All the home builder stocks dropped by 50 percent by mid 2006. It kind of started in Florida with the hurricanes when they wiped out all of the property casualty insurance. So really, the housing crisis started in Florida. And then we discovered subprime and, you know, we realized builders had too much land and these things really weren't selling and nobody had the income to survive and, and stay in these places. So it took years and Bernanke, Chairman Bernanke was a, a really good architect, uh, having studied the Great Depression as his thesis. So, you know, he was really innovative in coming up with ideas like TARP and TALF and all the acronyms we've all forgotten now. And now we'll have a whole new group of of acronyms from you know CARES and uh, corporate paper facilities and uh, Zoom, you know we all know. So we'll, we'll have a whole new alphabet. Thank thank God for Zoom. We can say we have that new alphabet from A to Z. But um, where we are today, I was initially very critical of the Fed when they started um, just reducing interest rates. I did a briefing at the end of February to the bank regulators. I do one each quarter, and. Uh, my closing remark on CRE conditions was, please guys, just don't jump first to interest rate cuts. It's gonna do no good. We're gonna need what, what the Red Shoe economists called back in February for a CIF, a coronavirus intervention. And that's exactly what they, what they are finally doing today is really a, a massive intervention facility um, that really they probably should have jumped too early on, but I think they were hoping that Congress would step up and do its job. And, and while Congress delayed and didn't get things done, you know, um, blame whichever party you want, 
the Fed really had to jump in. We were really at another precipice, like when Lehman failed. Do you, do you have to intervene? So when the Fed started saying, you know what, we just have to throw everything at this thing. We got to do corporate paper facilities to help out, you know, uh, corporate paper in the market. We got to take on student loans, small business loans. I really give the Fed really high marks for just saying, you know what, it's unprecedented. We have to throw everything out. We got to act before Congress does. And then we may have to fill some holes. So we're already finding that out with how the banks fund these PP, um, PPL loans for program the, the, uh, uh, for small business through the banks. And really that's a program that might take six months to a year to set up and they're having to do it in six to you know 72 hours. So I give the Fed high marks on what they're doing. They really get it. They're throwing everything at it. Here's my big concern. So we entered this pre-COVID virus with a $23 trillion deficit. And 2020 was on track to be the first fiscal year since 2009 where we run up another trillion dollar deficit. And the economy was a whole lot different going into 2020 than it was in 2009. So did we, did we really need almost low interest and this kind of deficit spending? My answer was no. And so I looked, you know, and I've been talking in January and February about, you know, we need to pay attention to our fiscal health of our states. And um, it was kind of interesting and people didn't pay that much attention. They said, yeah, yeah, we know Illinois and California and New York, New Jersey are, are kind of bad. And everybody's renting U-Haul trucks and moving to Florida, <laughs> the Sunbelt states. But we really need to pay attention to this because um, think about what the Fed has had to do in the month of March. They, between the federal government CARES intervention and the Fed, we've added $5 trillion of debt. So in one month, we added $5 trillion. We had $23 trillion. We were going to run a trillion for this year. We got $5 trillion between the 2 and 2.6, 2.7. The Fed's added to its balance sheet now back up to $5 trillion, a new record. We had the 2.2, 2.3 trillion CARES bill. And now we're talking about another trillion dollars at least uh, you know, to get us further down the road is it looks like it's going to take longer to bend this curve and these shelter in place orders. So one of the questions we have to be asking ourselves, all of us, is as we go forward and look at whether you call it stimulus or rescue or whatever else, whatever term you want to use, we have to focus on what we need and not what we want. And so I, I have colleagues that are, you know, sole proprietors and, you know, they've made good money as, you know, brokers in their little practices and they immediately rushed out and got their $10,000 loan and didn't need it. Um, we're really going to have to focus on it because I think the, the fiscal end of this thing could be worse than the, the virus itself. There is just not enough money. There's a great piece I'd recommend people to look at. It's by an author named John Lifflander, L-I-F-F-L-A-N-D-E-R. And he wrote a decade ago a thing called How Monetary Policy Impacts Commercial Real Estate Values. And it's a really short read that essentially chronicles the history of fiat currencies in the world. And so the last fiat currency to collapse was Germany after World War II. And before that, we had China during the Song Dynasty when it devalued or took away anything supporting its currency. Uh, mainly it was silk back then. And people forget the Roman Empire. The real reason for the collapse was when Nero took silver out of the denarius. So all of us today are, are fiat currencies. There's nothing backing our currency. And the only way the Fed's able to do what it's able to do, the Fed does not take credit risk. It calls the treasury and says, please crank up the printing machines and print a bunch of money and we'll be your, your broker or a middle middleman to collect all this collateral, but you're on the hook. And we have no idea, we do no mark to market on this stuff. So I'm really worried about how we connect the bones or the dots on this fiscal stuff. Yeah, so talk about that. I mean, because, you know, that seems to be the biggest concern is is inflation. And I've even, you know, been studying on, you know, sort of potential deflationary sort of environment that we could be entering into, perhaps not on the same sort of wavelength, but I'd love for you to just touch on both of those potentials and how do real estate investors act now with those potentials, you know, being something that we could be looking at because of this unlimited ability of the Fed to print. That's a great observation and question. So, you know, the, the, the people forget there's two parts to inflation. 
One is the currency and one is the price of goods and commodities and assets. And so, you know, we're, we're conditioned to just look at the asset prices, the commodity prices. And we say, well, look at oils down to 20 to $25 a barrel from 7,500, you know, $75, you know, a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, look at lumber prices. I, I looked yesterday, they're down 25%. And home builders are still building. We, they didn't stop building houses. So I'm kind of puzzled that that's just a futures, future options kind of bet thing going on. So if you look at commodities and asset prices, there's real concern for deflation. But if you look at the stock market, for example, right? But if you look at the currency issue, which causes major uh, inflation uh, problems. So if your currency isn't worth anything, the price is going to have to go way up because people aren't going to pay you for, you know, or accept in, in kind a paper currency that's worth nothing. And so the tangible assets will, will, will protect you and go up in value. And I think that's where people in the real estate industry need to be focused is that owning a tangible real estate asset is a tremendous hedge, I think, on inflation. Uh, if you look at replacement costs, these assets aren't gonna be cheaper to, to replace, uh, just putting all the pieces back together. So I think we have to segment kind of the asset prices and commodity prices from the currency value. And the currency value can cause really, really destructive inflation. And we've seen that in other parts of the world. And uh, that's, that's, that's the piece I would give people to, to keep in focus. And while I'm encouraged, I'm gonna make sure if I have any extra money, I'm paying off you know, the house or the real estate assets. Um, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I think we just have to segregate those two items. Are you someone who is looking to seriously elevate your life this year? I mean, now, because I want to let you know that I am currently opening up a few coaching spots for people like you who want to close the gap from where you are to where you want to be. And I want to invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. Again, that's coachwithtyler.com. I have to tell you, this is not for everyone. This is only for those who are defiantly committed, those who are decisive those who are coachable, those who are resourceful, they're willing to do whatever it takes. They're willing to sacrifice time, energy, and invest resources into themselves to get to where they want to be, to live life at the highest level, and to elevate to a life without limits, exactly what we talked about on this show. If that is you, I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. Again, that's coachwithtyler.com. Do you see the future of the US dollar to be the same that it is today? Or is there a potential that the world's economic system will no longer be the standard of the US dollar in the future? Or what's your opinion there? Yeah, right now, I think we, we stay in that we're in that reserve currency, because we're the entity that's, you know, kind of what everybody holds and we trade in and every commodity, whether it's oil or anything else is priced in the dollar. So it's kind of hard to do it. The whole uh, evolution of Bitcoin in these cryptocurrencies was really in response to that. Nobody was really believing that, say, China or Europe was going to be the reserve currency. And really, if you thought about it, the, the real benefit of something like a cryptocurrency was there's a way through algorithms to mute the volatility that's caused by what central bankers do around the world. So if we cut interest rates to zero and Europe cuts them to minus 2%. You can write algorithms and hold a different basket of, of goods to basically stabilize that and make trade even. So if I'm trading something from the United States, say Caterpillar equipment for something, you know, good wine in, in, the, in the French Champagne region or whatever, I don't have to worry about that currency volatility. I think we are on a track that whether it's Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency, that a digital currency in the next 10 to 20 years is probably going to be a threat and maybe replace what we know as a dominant um, you know, currency in the world. And that's where I think the U.S. needs to pay attention that the dollar might not be it, especially with what we're doing right now. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, the biggest thing that I see is, you know, is the you know, prescription to the problem going to be potentially worse than the problem and how do we act? I mean, you know, we all could say, you know, we can all be up in arms about whatever decisions that we see, you know, but at the, at the end of the day, the only way to operate is to act on what's reality. And so that's why I want to talk about what's reality here. And I'd love to, you know, just talk in terms of general concepts from a macroeconomic standpoint. Obviously, we're in a global economy, there's no doubt about that, but it all comes down to how does it impact you on Main Street as a real estate investor. So, you know, the, the most recent uh, example that we have is 2009, 
right? We've, you know, that's what we've been looking at in terms of a recession. And then obviously before that, you talked about just briefly earlier is the Great Depression. So the question is right now, you know, it seems obviously that we're in a recession. We're definitely in a, in a bear market. Um, how, what's the, what's the length and the duration of this? Obviously we don't know how long we're going to be in shelter in place sort of, uh, you know, uh, position here as, as people and as an economy, but I'd be curious to know, you know, are you looking at yourself a V shaped recovery? Are you looking at a W an L whatever it may be, or, I mean, is this, is this a depression and how does that, how does that impact, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and real estate investors? Uh, again, you're spot on on going right right to the the head on the nail. So let's let's try to hit it. So let's start with what's the difference between a recession and a depression. So a res neither one of them does the National Bureau of Economic Research, the NBER, officially define. But generally in practice, we recognize a recession as at least two consecutive quarters of GDP contraction. So we've seen that in our lifetimes, and we're we're accustomed to it. A depression, we have to go back to like 1919, believe it or not, we had a depression 1919 to 21 before the roaring 20s. And then again in the Great Depression, a depression is recognized as having three characteristics. The first is you have unemployment rise to at least 10% or higher. The second is you have GDP contract by 10% or more a year. And both of those conditions have to persist, not just for quarters, but years, and they generally recognize it as three years. So 1919 to 21, and then the Great Depression, we had all three of those characteristics, greater than 10% of GDP, greater than 10% unemployment, and both conditions persisting for years. Um, so those, those are the two characteristics. I don't think we're in a depression. I think we're in a recession. I think this actually could be more of a W, a double dip recession. So I think the first one we're in right now, it's more severe. Maybe it's a wobbly W, <laughs> something like my, my young kid would, would draw in, in <laughs> kindergarten or grade school, uh, not perfectly symmetrical. Um, so the first one is more steep. The first part of that W is more steep as we have the shelters in place. Then when we start to come out of those, we're gonna see a rebound in the economy, but I don't think we're gonna see it to the degree that we're all hoping. We don't go back to our old normal. And I think that we could slip back in as we see more small businesses that were destroyed. We apparently had 25% of all small businesses essentially go out of business in, in the first eight weeks of this thing. That's that's staggering when you consider we have 600,000 small businesses and we've had 25% or 150,000 basically go out of business. And so those are regarded as people with less than 500 employees. Um, so uh, a couple of things I would look at is good forward looking indicators as we start to come out of this to where it's going to tell us whether we, you know, are in a U, a more protracted um, recession, or we have a W. So the first is I've always been a fan of the American Association of Railroads rail time indicators. As goes the economy, so goes what goes on the rail traffic. And so um, it, was, it was doing fairly well. Uh, we saw some dip during the tariffs, um, obviously, but they just produced their March report and March data, and it was the worst month since they've been keeping data in 1988. So when you shut down global trade and the world economy, not much to move on, on the railroads. So I'd watch to see particularly what's known as intermodal container traffic. Look for that to come back. Those are all the containers that come off the ships. They get put on more than more than one mode of transportation. Could be, you know, in LA, a truck to the rail, then the rail to Chicago, and then on a truck again. But that's what moves all the containers we put in our Walmarts and our grocery stores and Home Depots. The second one I'd watch that's really fascinating that, that I had not um, really focused on is the TSA, uh, Transportation uh, Security Association, produces a daily airport throughput count. So all the number of passengers are going through all of the airports in a TSA checkpoint. The first week of March, we had about 2.2 to 2.3 million passengers a day going through the airports, getting on a plane, traveling somewhere, you know, taking out a hotel room, dining out, renting a car, using a Uber, whatever. Uh, at the end of March, that fell to 150,000. Uh, Delta and American Airlines announced yesterday they used to have 250 to 300 flights a day in and out of the New York airports. Those are contracting to like 10 or 15. So until we see that number rebound, and I think we may be optimistic if we get that back to a million, 
or a million and a half by the fall. I don't think people are going to jump back on a plane. I think they're going to do more day trips. Um, we're learning to use the Zoom technology. Uh, that has a bigger impact on our hotels, our small business, our restaurants. So I, I'm in the camp. I think we're more likely to see a W here. So after we come out, we see a pop. And I think we could slip back as we realize how much carnage really did occur and what we have to, what the holes we have to backfill. Yeah. So Casey, I want to, I want to talk about the crystal ball here, the, the Casey <laughs> Conway crystal ball. If you were to say, I mean, obviously what you, what you've predicted is a little bit of a W perhaps, right? It's a, it's a little bit of a recovery than perhaps another dip and then maybe more of a stronger recovery than, than on the back end. So I'd love to know, I mean, obviously there's still, you know, things to be seen in terms of the timeline of the shelter in place and, and really flattening the curve, you know, from the health perspective. But what do you see in terms of the timeline of this recovery? If you were to make a prediction, I mean, are we talking Q4 is potentially that second, you know, dip there and, and then perhaps Q1 of, of 2021, we're looking at the, the upward swing of that W or what, what's your prediction? So I'll give you um, a good reference. So um, one of my uh, friends from my legacy Fed days is St. Louis Fed President Jim Board. He is a very grounded, non, you know, dramatic, um, uh, and and he'll be politically incorrect and tell you the truth (laughs) rather than fib to you. Uh, He's the president of St. Louis Fed. And uh, He's in the camp. He thinks we're going to we're going to see a V here. He's been this past weekend. He was on some of the Sunday morning talk shows, and he was spot on in terms of saying, "Look at if you look at where we are as an economy, we were about a five trillion dollars a quarter, a little over a five trillion dollar a quarter economy uh, in March that had contracted to about half of that, about two and a half trillion. So if you look at the stimulus uh, cares bill." that about plugged the hole to get us back to five trillion, but that only gets us to the end of April. Now, what do we do? It looks like these shelter in place orders are gonna be in place through May. So we're gonna need, you know, hopefully only another trillion, a, a, a new CARES, I call it CARES 2, right? That uh, it has more, more, want, more need than want, and we don't put as much pork, we have more beef than pork in it. Although I, I read yesterday all the, all the beef packing plants, the largest one in the United States in, Arkansas just had a, a virus outbreak with workers. So now there may be no beef at the grocery store. Beef may be as hard to get as toilet paper, but please don't go hoard all the beef. <laughs> it does have an expiration date, unlike toilet paper. Um, so I think Jim Bullard is a good one to follow. He's, he's inside baseball. He just came off as a voting member of the FOMC. He's been there through the 2009 whole crisis. Very grounded individual. So if I look at uh, beyond Jim and look at where I'm looking, I'll give you my two best anecdotal indicators that we're going to be out of this by the fall. The first one was I am now getting entities that are guaranteeing my honorarium payment this week if I will book events in October and November. So that tells me industry and places in Florida and New York are confident enough to put capital at risk to pay my honorarium this week to the university to get me booked um, before everybody else herds in in October. The second one is Augusta National just announced this week that they're going to reschedule the Masters for November. Hey, if we're going to have golf in Augusta Masters without azaleas blooming, we're opening this economy. So those are my two <laughs> best forward-looking indicators. <laughs> Man, that's huge. I actually didn't even hear that. Um, I love that. So we've, we've got some commitment that we're seeing from institutions and folks that may know more than we do that perhaps by the fall, we're looking at a potential opening and maybe a little bit of a, it seems like we're going to be kind of crawling back into this. You know, it's like, we're not, maybe we're not going to be roaring back like completely the, the previous normal won't start like just like as a snap of the fingers, but you know, we're perhaps going to kind of ease into this. And, and obviously there's going to be some changes on the back end as well. I think, you know, many are seeing that perhaps a zoom meeting is as effective as, you know, an in-person meeting in many ways. And so it'll be interesting to see the impact on different asset classes. And you touched a little bit in terms of, and perhaps it was even before the call, we were talking about hospitality. We were talking about, you know, different various asset classes. So I'd love to know, uh, what are you seeing in the short term and longer term in terms of the impact on the various asset classes of commercial real estate, whether it's office, whether it's multifamily, whether it's industrial, uh, hospitality, and so on, and retail as well. We'd love to just kind of touch on, on all of those in terms of what you're seeing, uh, the crystal ball as well. 
Yeah, no, that's what really people want to know. So I'll give you my best thoughts. I'll start with the easy one, multifamily. Everybody thinks it's going to be fine. You know, something like 93% of all apartments in this country that have a loan, they have a loan that's held by Freddie, Fannie, or one of the GSC's government-sponsored enterprises. So when they say, you got forbearance, as long as you forbear rent on your tenants, all's going to be good in the workforce multifamily. Well, it may be true until tenants realize forbearance isn't forgiveness and they still have to pay the rent. Um, that may be an interesting dialogue six months from now, but I'll distinguish between workforce multifamily and student housing. I'm very concerned about our student housing in our many university markets. Um, so I have two daughters, one in grad school at Florida State and one in uh, undergrad at the University of Alabama. Um, go figure, right? You know, I think I think I might get a faculty benefit that helps there. So uh, both of them lost their jobs. Uh, the universities closed down. They said, you got to pack up and get out of here. They both were in off-campus market rent uh, housing. And uh, they said, dad, what are we going to do? We got to leave. We got to pay our rent. I don't have a job. So I said, bring your lease. Come on home. I looked through the leases. Both those leases have act of God clauses, and some of them have uh, act of university that go back to things like the Virginia Tech school shooting, where if universities close for longer than a two-week period of time, the local town municipalities and universities require off-campus uh, uh, multifamily owners to put in their leases in order for them to drive student traffic to them, uh, these act of university or act of God clauses. So both of those triggered that they can get out of both their leases. We paid the rent for March, we're out. We're not paying on the one-year lease until April, I mean, until next August. So I think in university markets, we're gonna see a very significant hit in student housing multifamily. I don't think people have connected those dots yet. It's, it's a big deal. The other thing, uh, we'll move from multifamily, the distinction between workforce and student housing to retail. So retail, I think once again, we need to distinguish between two groups. There's consumer staples, like your grocery store, Costco, Walmart, Target, and uh, well, Target less so, and your consumer discretion. So these are your department stores, your apparel stores, your even a Target is more discretion than um, a staple like a Walmart with a grocery store. So the staples are doing very well. They're standing up their online grocery. That business, which was kind of just learning to crawl, it's up and sprinting. Um, so we're gonna see an acceleration of online grocery. And I had predicted some time ago in a couple of papers that I'd written for the CCIM Institute in, in Acre that um, in the, we called it retail evolution, that we would see an increased acceleration of online grocery before this virus, this was over a year ago, and that um, grocery stores could become the new department stores. They could go dark. How are we gonna repurpose all of that retail? So retail, I would distinguish between consumer staples and consumer um, discretionary. The other thing is those retailers that were using Amazon are learning an important lesson. And, and those that thought they could survive right now by using Amazon are finding out that Amazon has said, we're not gonna restock our warehouses with consumer discretionary products only the in-demand staples and toilet paper and pharmaceutical. So if you try to go order something online, like we try to do a, a GameStop thing for my son, it took days to a week versus the next day. So those retailers that thought they might be able to survive with an Amazon relationship might find something different. They may rotate to something like a Shopify or an Etsy or FedEx has stepped up and said, we'll keep all of our warehouses fully stocked to help the small businesses keep going. So I think uh, that's on the retail side. Uh, already, we've had 50,000 retail stores close in the last eight weeks. That's mind boggling. Um, you know, the, the, the forecast, you know, we, we had a record year last year um, where we had 9,000 stores closed. And in January alone, we had 2,000 more announcements. Well, now we've had 50,000. So we're going to have to look at a lot of adaptive reuse for a lot of empty retail going forward. Um, and then the online isn't as easy. You got to figure out your relationship with, say, an Amazon and what are they going to do to you uh, in between. Also on this online, we're now discovering the virus doesn't just stay away from warehouses. Right. So Amazon and others, meatpacking plants are all discovering workers are coming down with it, um, getting infected. So what happens when our online supply chain gets affected by a virus and we can't move the goods all the way through or we have to have other mitigation in there? Um, one of our, I, had a, I was on a call with the Institute of Real Estate Management 
and we were talking about, you know, is, is, is your office a good place to go to get toilet paper if you can't get it at the grocery store? And they said, look, we, we've got surveillance. We're watching you. And they said, that our biggest challenge is that people are stealing the hand sanitizer. So they have it at the check-in desk and whatnot, and someone will, you know, clip it into their bag or whatnot and sneak out with the hand sanitizer. So different things going on there. So retail, I think, is going to be really tough hospitality one thing i just wanted to make a mention on retail it's so interesting is that you know it's been going through this extreme evolution over the past several years and really it's been all about experiential retail you know that's how you adapt that's how you pivot in times of e-commerce and now obviously the experiential retail is more impacted than maybe any other it seems to be more impacted than maybe any other asset class currently so i just find it to be so fascinating we just got to be ready for anything and in this uncertain environment no, I'm glad you said it. It's what I call, you know, as we're going through this, I advocate two philosophies or attitudes. The first is look up and forward, because if you don't look up and forward, you're never going to find the light at the end of the tunnel. And then like experiential retail, that light at the end of the tunnel might be another freight train coming down the tracks that you just have to get Man. off. So not all lights are the exits with fresh air. It could be, wow, I didn't think that experiential could get whacked. You make a really, really valid point there on the retail. Um, on office, I'm actually going to make a contrarian bet here. My contrarian bet is we're going to see really almost record leasing and absorption activity coming out of this because I think even though we've discovered all this technology and Zoom and whatnot, we've understood and are beginning to fully appreciate the challenges of full-time work at home. It doesn't work so well. And it's really um, complicated and compounded with the, you know, the kids being at home, but just the distractions, the abilities, uh, the want to socially interact. I mean, our industry, our real estate industry is a relationship industry. We have to interact. We have to meet and show properties and spaces and, and everything else. So I think that people are going to really value that. Wow. I want to, I want to go back to the office. I want to go back and have lunch. I want to meet with clients. I can't really do that at home. So that's my contrarian bet that I think office may come out of this. Okay. Uh, the hotel is really, really tough. How do you get through you know, now in the future, there are some encouraging signs. There was a great story in the Dallas Business Journal yesterday or the weekend about an architectural group, I think it's HKS, that has figured out how to, within a 10-day to two-week period of time, convert basically an empty hotel into a um, hospital center for coronavirus victims. And uh, so I called it, it was a Sheraton that they converted it. And I said, you know, this group has figured out how to convert a Sheraton to a keratin. And, uh, you know, real estate people are going to be needed to help understand those contracts, those agreements. There's insurance implications, indemnifications, things that, that realtors are really well experienced in. So I think we could see hotels, particularly in places that are university towns that have a hospital, uh, isolating the workers that don't need to go home and reinfect their people. Let them work a two or three day shift, stay at the hotel near the hospital, uh, then have a day of quarantining before they go back. They have a place to get meal. Um, this could be a real bridge for hotels to get over this gap. It won't solve everything in suburban and roadside and interstate, but for urban and hotels near hospitals, I think there could be some some hope there. And then the the real winner in this thing is industrial. We're, we're discovering this morning, the news came out in, um, well, it was Forbes or Journal of Commerce or one of them, but Port Laredo. So who's heard of Port Laredo? <laughs> only, only a logistics geek like, like us, right? Um, it just surpassed LA Long Beach in total container traffic. We are remaking our logistics supply chain. The 1980 textbooks that taught us just-in-time inventory, throw them all out, shred them. Um, you know, control alt delete on the computer. We're going to redo our whole logistics. We're going to see more of our manufacturing come back, if not entirely, but at least peacefully, so that we're not in a position where we don't manufacture any of our pharma or any of our mass or any of our key components to our economy. So I think with the manufacturing comeback, that means more uh, industrial warehouse demand. And I think we're going to build it out more and in places that create a redundancy. So places like Port Laredo. Port Freeport near Houston, Port, Port of Mobile, they just opened up and completed their new terminal expansion for Walmart to come in. So I think we're going to see a, a lot of change in the logistics and, and the real winners, I think, are going to be the industrial real estate class.
Yeah, it seems like the the biggest takeaway here is be ready to adapt at any moment, you know, no matter what the next unforeseen event is in the future, you know, you've got to be able to put your contingency plans in place and put them into action um, and be ready, you know, because like what his hospitality is doing right now in terms of potentially bridging their challenge gap in terms of adapting their use for a hospital sort of a use, at least in the short term, perhaps can bridge that gap for them. But, you know, I'd love to know one of the things that we've been discussing as we've kind of gotten more used to the circumstances is the impact on the debt and equity markets. You know, one of the things that seems to be different in terms of this uh, economic shift than from 2009 is that you're really seeing still an availability of, of financing as well as equity. I'd love to see or I'd love to hear what you believe in terms of the short and long-term impact of debt and equity this sort of situation has on the marketplace. Right. So two good sources I would throw out. So one on the permanent and securitized debt, I'd recommend TREPP, T-R-E-P-P. They track down to the property level every securitized loan in the world. And they're phenomenal and they're putting really good pieces out and modeling what they think, whether we stay shut down until June or it goes longer than that, what that what that means. Uh, we, we, we had a achieved a bottom in CMBS delinquency of around 2% going into this thing, coming down from over 10% in 2009. That's already quickly unraveling. It's up to three. It's going to probably go up 100, 150 basis points in delinquency. Remember, these are non-recourse, those uh, bankruptcy remote LLC. If I've got no skin in the game, you know, I'm, I'm not going to risk my home type of loans. That's why they pay a higher coupon. So, on that side, though, there was an interesting dimension. Uh, the other resource I'd recommend is called RCA, Real Capital Analytics. A good friend of mine does a great job, Jim Costello. He hosted a webinar last week where they looked at who holds the debt by lending source by property type. And it was really revealing. So we all knew that Freddie and Fannie held a lot of the multifamily debt. How about 93% of it? <laughs> Do you think there's a reason they jumped in with loan modifications and forbearance before everybody else? They knew they were proverbial bleeped if they didn't do something. So that, that we know. But on the hotel side, it's really broadly dispersed. Nobody has more than 10 or 15%. So hotels, not enough that it's going to crater the banks or the life companies or CMBS. None of them really loaded up on it like maybe we had before the 2009 financial crisis on that side of it. And on retail, surprisingly, retail is pr pretty well dispersed as well. It's about 15 to high teen percent among any one of the debt sources. So here's the good news on the debt side. No one lending source, except in multifamily, is holding all of the pieces for one property type. That means that with it dispersed among all of the different sources, probably no one gets wiped out and we have more room for maybe the Fed to interfere, intervene, we'll say interfere, intervene and plug a hole where we need it like in hotel or something like that. So on the debt side, I'm real encouraged. The last thing I'll share is that each week, I'm doing about 20 calls a day, the bankers, Wall Street, companies, home builders, you name it. And so one of my talk to are the, are the banks on a regular basis, and the banks are telling me a couple things. Look, if you have a construction loan right now, it's proceeding as normal. You have the commitment, build it out. We know it makes no sense to stop construction. We didn't enter this thing with any excesses, really, if you think about it. We weren't overbuilding like in 2009, especially on the housing side. So existing construction is gonna continue with probably a little disruption on supply chain. If you're a home builder, you're probably gonna be disrupted by waiting on bathroom fixtures from China <laughs> or hardware. Um, you know, there, there may also be some prioritization of what gets put from the ports or the rail to your supply chain. Construction materials may get delayed or deferred over, uh, over other more critical type items. So your construction cycle may move a little bit later. The banks are already aware of it. The Fed has told the banks to work with customers on that six months, a year from now to uh, give extensions on, on construction deadlines. Most have interest reserves anyway to cushion them through that period of time. So construction lending, I wouldn't be worried at all um, on that side of it. On the debt side, nobody except for the GSEs hold any one property type. And then on the equity side, believe it or not, the equity is really looking for opportunities. So one of my jobs is I serve on the board of directors for a public REIT. 
and uh, it's Monmouth, um, and we hold uh, a lot of the, we're the owners for a lot of the warehouses for FedEx, and we closed a deal just a, a, at the end of March on a deal in Columbus, Ohio. Our pipeline is open, we have cash, we look at this as an opportunity that deals that may be priced at a five or lower cap rate a month ago, maybe now trade at a six or seven cap rate. So equity is out there to help. The banks are doing what they didn't do in 2009. They really are helping. They're not shutting off lines of credit. They're not disrupting construction loans. They're leaving lines of credit to be drawn on and they're, and they're assuring people to keep your construction projects going. So I feel a lot better about the debt and equity pieces. Yeah, no, that's great. That's really great insight. I'd love to, you know, one of the things that you just mentioned there is a great segue into what I wanted to talk about in terms of opportunities is now obviously you're seeing sort of assets be repriced, right? And how do you even, how do you even reprice them? And how, how are you even specifying well, what does that cap rate need to be now, right? Because I feel like the chips are still falling, but perhaps even the, the group that you're working with, the, the REIT, you know, uh, it seems like you've already put a number on that. And so what is the, what are the opportunities look like now in the near term and in the, in the future, you know, based on this shift and based on this pivot? Yes. I don't, I think the, I hate to say, you know, we, it's too early to kind of tell, I think there is a repricing and this is a big challenge for the appraisers. In fact, I'm writing a piece this morning on one of my five tips for, uh, you know, appraisals and understanding where they are. And the, and the, the first tip I would say is, the appraisers have received no relief really in suspending the rules, the bank requirements. Um, there are guidelines that tell them how to appraise during a period of what we call material change. Um, so none of that, the interagency guidelines, the uniform standards professional appraisal practice, none of them have been modified, none of them have been waived, and they're not going to be. So appraisers have to figure out where do we go to in the market to find the kind of information that tell us what kind of repricing has happened. So I think they're gonna need to look in new places. It was easy to just go on CoStar and find a bunch of comps. Guess what? There, there's not gonna be as many comps, there will be some. You're gonna to have to be in touch with say, the REIT world who does have capital and is purchasing. You're gonna to have to be in touch with brokers that are dealing with clients that have a need that are trying to figure out, do I do a loan mod or do I just try to dump this thing? What's happening with transactions? Are they falling out? So I'll give you one good example. I talked to a, a number of um, institutional funds, big ones, and they are actually walking from deposits on really good deals that have nothing wrong with them, including warehouses, for one simple reason. They're now out of balance. The value of their industrial assets have held up. They know the value of hotels are impaired. They've got to do some sort of impairment analysis. So now they're out of balance and they're trying to get back in balance. So they're not going to add anything to it. So they might have a five or 10 million deposit down on a you know, 10, 20, $30 million, really nice new modern e-commerce warehouse, and they're walking from it because of their allocation problems. So what the developer is able to do is apply that to reduce the price, to make it more attractive, to say like a REIT that has, has cash on hand. So I think they're gonna, we're gonna have to be more in touch at, a, at the, old, the old way we used to do work. I got my MAI in, in the 1980s. Uh, we did a lot of, of wearing out shoe leather and making calls. Uh, there, no one had a central database. The internet really didn't exist, or if it did, we didn't really understand it. So it's going to be back to that old way of primary discussions, staying in touch with people, finding out about the few transactions, and then I think understanding the distortion in some of the data. The best one I'll give you is the jobs numbers. So in the CARES Act, is the first time ever that we're allowing 1099 employees and sole proprietors to file for unemployment benefits. That's never been the case. So when we, when we try to compare the unemployment numbers or the jobless claims numbers and how we went to 9.9 million in two weeks, you gotta understand it's a different group. We're not comparing apples to apples anymore. So we're gonna have these real weird spikes in data tables that we're not gonna figure out how to compress. <laughs> they're, they're gonna look like, you know, uh, you know the, the good period before the tail event when they really are the tail event. But there's a lot of distortion. So here's a few I would tell you to watch. The National Federation of Independent Business, they have a small business optimism index, and they're surveying the small businesses around the country, all their members, and they're telling you what they're anxious about, what they're forward-looking, uh, whether they're able to retain employees, get rent concessions, you name it. I would really monitor that really good, robust information in there. The National Association of Home Builders, they have their um, home builder optimism index. And what they told us was, 
up until two weeks ago, in states that didn't have shelter-in-place orders, traffic and sales were pretty good. And their biggest concern was supply chain disruption, things coming in from China. So they're telling us really good, important things. The third one I would tell you to watch is the earnings. So we start earnings season April 14th with the banks. And forget what the numbers are. They're going to look awful. Look at what guidance they tell us. So Nike had earnings a week ago. And Nike said, you know what? People are at home and they want to at least go out and get a walk. And they're realizing, forget my dress shoes or my high heels. My walking shoes are terrible. And they're going online and they're ordering record numbers of, you know, walking shoes or they're seeing the kids' shoes are out that they were going to buy for, for summer. So Nike is someone saying, you know what? We're doing great. You know who else is doing good? florists and people like UPS because we can't visit grandma and grandpa so we're sending them flowers we're sending them packages so when you talk about that experiential difference now we're moving from more you know experiential to how do we stay in touch with grandma grandpa people that are sheltered in place how do we celebrate Easter this coming weekend and deal with um, this this holy week so those are some of the ones I'm looking at I think we've got to look at more forward-looking primary data those surveys that gauge consumer confidence, home builder confidence, small business confidence. And then, like I said, that the TSA throughput thing will tell us how well we're doing when we come out of this thing. Yeah. Wow. And there's, there's so much that we need to be observing and, and educating ourselves on and being aware of because, you know, there's so many different factors that play into this. And, and Casey, I want to be super respectful of your time. I know you've got many other uh, demands on your schedule these days. Obviously, this is kind of like the Super Bowl of Casey Conway's <laughs> life and world. And so obviously, really appreciate you spending time with us and, and sharing uh, so much wisdom. Tell the listeners, um, you know, how they can how they can still engage with you otherwise outside of Elevate. Right. So I, I do a lot of posts each day on LinkedIn, and I don't tell you what I'm barbecuing or any nonsense. I'll tell you really neat things like the TSA throughput number or what's happening at a port or Port Laredo. So send me a LinkedIn request. Um, it's at my um, University of Alabama, um, Casey, uh, Casey Conway at culverhouse.ua.edu. Um, also uh, recommend the CCIM Institute. They've done a real good job in what I think all of our industries need to do and what I call cross-pollination. Everything they're putting on their COVID-19 site isn't just their content. If they find something great from Jim Costello at Real Capital Analytics or TSA or NHA, you know, National Home Builders or whatever, they're putting it on there. And it's CCIM.com forward slash COVID-19. And then at the University of Alabama at our Alabama Center for Real Estate, which is um, ACRE, A-C-R-E, at culverhouse.ua. Edu. We have a whole separate COVID-19. I write a weekly Wednesday Insight. I'm producing three to four really deep content pieces on different things each, each week that get posted on there. That's a good one. So those are a couple places. I'll leave you with one final thought. Uh, as, as, you know, as I'm thinking each week, I'm trying to get perspective and I ran across, a, if you could go back to World War II times, a really tough times, and found a great quote from Winston Churchill about forecasting. <laughs> and so here's what Winston Churchill had to say in November 1940, November 12th. He said, it is not given to human beings, happily for them, for otherwise life would be intolerable, to foresee or to predict to any large extent, the unfolding course of events. I mean, he said it right there. We don't know. All the forecasts are just someone else's theory. I think you just have to do ground level research, look, look up and forward. And the other piece of that I'd say is do what if thinking every day. What if the curve doesn't bend? What if it does bend? What if we don't open at the end of May? What if Congress decides this next bill is gonna be three trillion instead of two trillion? What does that mean for our currency and how we stand our economy back up? Uh, I wrote a piece last Wednesday called Dem Bones. It's the old spiritual song that we all learned in probably preschool and kindergarten, the hip bones connected to the leg bone. Uh, and it's, it's rooted in the Bible, uh, Ezekiel, I think 37, you know, when he talked about only God will be the one that will raise up all the bones and, and, and stand us up straight. But it had real, I think, context for us. As we go through this, we're breaking a lot of bones. They're in disarray. And we've got to pay attention to how we put those bones back together, how we reattach them in the right sequence. And I start with our deficit, our government spending, and our intervention. And if we don't stand those up right in the right sequence, 
my fear is we might end up attaching our head bone to something near our hip bone and not have a very good skeleton when it's all said and done. So do your what if thinking, think about the bones that have to be reattached in, in sequence. And um, you know, feel free to reach me. You're a great resource. All of us are out there. I've never seen a time of more what I call greatest generation behavior. Corporate America, they were totally trashed out of 2009 and the banks and everything else. They have stood up like we never could have imagined, whether it's continuing leave and pay or medical benefits, uh, some grocers that are opening up the first hour in the morning after the stores are closed to let seniors come shop. I mean, just the dots that we're connecting and how we're thinking from a corporate America. I tip my hat to corporate America. I encourage all of us to be greatest generation thinking. And my final forecast is when we come out of this, our millennial generation is going to show us they are the new greatest generation. That's amazing. Wow. I couldn't have put a better bow on this conversation, Casey. Really appreciate you taking time and sharing so much wisdom and depth of knowledge and understanding with us. And uh, until that, we'll have to have you on next time when we come out of this and we're reaching the next part of this cycle. So uh, Casey, thanks again for taking time. Thank you and appreciate all that you're doing for our industry and everybody. Absolutely. Be safe. Elevate Nation, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit tylerchesser.com.